Good morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here at Resurrection Church. Merry Christmas. Oh, it's after Thanksgiving. I officially get to start saying that. Uh, I'm a big Christmas guy. We've already got Christmas decorations up. I already had the fire going in the fireplace, which is a very Christmassy thing. Someone messaged me today. Uh, they live out of town. They got five inches of snow. I said, I don't know what that looks like. I live in Bakersfield. But we do have fog. All right. It's Christmas time. It's, it's Bakersfield snow is fog, right? That's right. Uh, okay. <laughs> so we got snow today. <laughs> Well, we're going to be in um, our Christmas series starting today. We want to kick this off. It's called Of Lambs and Kings. And so uh, we want to take a look at uh, a season of anticipation. And uh, we're going to start in a very odd place, although I think it'll make sense. I'm going to read to you the story of the Passover, which is the uh, part of the last plague that is put on Egypt as the Israelites are trying to be freed from slavery, leave the land of Egypt uh, under the burden of Pharaoh, and go to the promised land. And so uh, that occurs in Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to read this story to you, and then we're going to see if we can make sense of why this is so Christmassy. All right, here we go. Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Christmas season for the believer, and really even at this point culturally for the non-believer, is a season of anticipation. Anticipation is a major theme of the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, in Romans 8.22, Paul would say that all of creation is groaning in anticipation for the coming king to set all things right again. Uh, Paul would say, for we know that that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, Advent is something that we uh, 
believers and churches generally celebrate and participate in in the Christmas season. Now, Advent is about looking forward to a coming king. Advent wasn't actually part of the Christmas season until about the sixth century. So for uh, about 500 years or so, uh, Advent was actually done in the early months of the spring uh, until they started to realize that what we're actually celebrating around Christmas is the same thing that we're really celebrating around uh, Advent. And so let me read this to you real quickly as we've sort of tied Advent to Christmas. Advent symbolizes the present situation of the church in these last days as God's people wait for the return of Christ in glory to consummate his eternal kingdom. The church is in a similar situation to Israel at the end of the Old Testament in exile, waiting and hoping in prayerful expectation for the coming of the Messiah. Israel looked back to God's past gracious actions on their behalf in leading them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And on this basis, they called for God once again to act for them. In the same way, the church during Advent looks back upon Christ's coming in celebration while at the same time looking forward in eager anticipation to the coming of Christ's kingdom when he returns for his people. In this light, the Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, perfectly represents the church's cry during the Advent season. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly, lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. While Israel would have sung the song in expectation of Christ's first coming, the church now sings the song in commemoration of that first coming and in expectation of the second coming in the future. My hope for our church in this series is that we look forward to Christmas with anticipation, but even more so that we look forward to in anticipation to Christ's second coming. So we're going to walk through the Bible in this series over the course of the next four or five weeks. And uh, we're going to look at not only the build up for Christmas Day, which is obviously exciting, especially when you're young and you want to tear open presents, but we're going to look forward to the return of the king, the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. All right, there are two major prophecy lines that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, One prophecy line that we see, and I'll kind of walk you through it, is this idea, this foreshadowing and foretelling and and prophecy of a king that's going to come and set all things right. And there's another prophecy line that we see foretold and foreshadowed, and it's this concept of a lamb. And these are two major themes in the Old Testament, and the Israelite people would have been very familiar with each of these because they're they're brought up throughout the Bible and in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, the first one of the first things we really see heavily about a king is it's tied to David, to King David. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, God tells, uh, through Samuel, God tells David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And with this king, this idea of a king that's being prophesied and foretold is this idea that someday when the king comes, there will be justice. He will set all things right. Things that are broken will be fixed. And this idea of justice is a major theme that is tied to the king. And we'll hear the king in these prophecies described in different ways. We'll hear him called the son of man, and we'll hear him called the son of David. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, 
Uh, this is one of the prophecies of uh, the prophet Daniel. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was pre- presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There are many passages in the Old Testament that continue to uh, let the Hebrew people know that there was a king that would come and he would not be overthrown. Now, this is a people group in the Old Testament that is consistently in exile, being conquered by other nations, and there's a hope in these prophecies, in these foreshadows, in this foretelling that one day there will be a king and his kingdom will last forever and his throne will last forever and he will not be overthrown. But there's a separate set of parallel prophecies that are happening in the Old Testament. And for us, particularly in, in modern day world and in, in, the, in the 21st century, uh, some of these won't make much sense at all. And so we're gonna try to make sense of them. But there are these prophecies about a lamb, And we aren't going to go through all of the prophecies today. In fact, we're going to go through a couple more next week and look at some of these prophecies. But the Bible has a lot of foreshadowing around this idea of a lamb, a sacrifice. And these stories aren't as much about justice and truth as they are about sacrifice, payment, and love. And as you read these stories and these prophecies, you get this distinct picture of these two lines, one line of a king and one line of a lamb who brings loving, sacrificial payment, a lamb and a king. And I want to show you a stark and distinct picture of this foreshadowing in Exodus 12, the passage we just read. Let me give you just a little bit of background. If you're not familiar with this story of of the Hebrew people, they they, they got to Egypt in the first place when Joseph was sold into slavery, and he goes through a whole series of drama. Uh, ends up in prison, ends up uh, falsely accused, but uh, through God's blessing and sovereignty, ends up as Pharaoh's right-hand man. He's running Egypt. It ends up being something that saves the Hebrew people during a famine. Uh, Israelites come to Egypt, but over the course of time, there are a lot of Egyptians, and a new Pharaoh raises up and enslaves them, uh, puts them to work. They now work under a heavy burden for Pharaoh. In due time, many generations later, God raises up Moses to deliver his people, to command Pharaoh to let these people go. Uh, God is going to take the Hebrews. He's going to make them his people. He's going to be their God. He's going to take them to a promised land. He's going to, uh, over them, lay covenants and blessings, and he's going to raise them up, even though they, he even tells them, you're not anything special. I'm doing this because I'm special, and I'm going to declare my glory to the nations through you. And so in the course of, uh, of this story, uh, Pharaoh, his heart is hardened, and he will not allow the people to go. Now, if we actually read the text, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He allowed Pharaoh to push back and to sort of rebel against the will of God so that he could display his power and his glory in in these plagues. And so you have nine plagues that are laid upon the Egyptian people already by the time we get to our story. Um, He's turned water into blood. They've had a plague of frogs, then gnats, then wild animals and flies, then pestilence of livestock, then boils. I'm glad I was not around for that one. Thunderstorm of hail and fire, locusts, darkness for three days, and then we get to our passage for today. Now, 
It's interesting in this conversation that and we can't go through it all of it, but Moses and Pharaoh are kind of going back and forth. And one of the things Pharaoh wants to know from Moses is, um, what, what's so unique about your God? Like, why should I care that your God wants uh, these people to be let go? Because in the Egyptian culture, there's a lot of gods. They had all kinds of different gods. In fact, the, a lot of the Hebrew people had actually been worshiping Egyptian gods at that point, and they barely even knew who their God was supposed to be. So, so Pharaoh has, has basically what I think is a very valid question that many of you and I, at least at some point in our lives, have had, which is what's so unique about this guy? Why should I listen to him, Right? And so what really the answer to that question of what's so unique about this God is answered in our passage today. You see, I would submit to you that the very center of Judaism is the Passover and the very center, the central act of Christianity is really the observance of this sort of revised Passover called the Lord's Supper, a communion. And we're gonna look at that today and why it's so significant, why it sits as the, the central symbol or the central point of meaning inside of our faith. And I would, I would uh, say it this way, why at the center of both Judaism and Christianity is there this idea that is central to our faith uh, that there is a need for a bloody death of a helpless victim? That there is a need for a bloody death of a helpless victim. And to uh, really explain why that's so central and why that's so necessary, which, by the way, is probably pretty foreign for us as modern people, why we would need to have a bloody sacrificial lamb at the center of our faith, uh, we're going to have to back up and, and, and sort of separate ourselves from our very uh, Western culture concept, our very individualistic nature, and take a look at the way this would have been viewed in the ancient world. You see... In the ancient world, there was this concept that we are the product or the byproduct of our family. And so I don't do anything in absence or in a vacuum. Everything that I do actually has implications to my family. And everything that I do has uh, much of who I am today. I'm a byproduct of my family, my, my, my father and my mother and my environment, either because of things they did or things they didn't do. And much of what I do today will have implications on my children and this, this idea of shared responsibility inside of a community, but particularly inside of a family unit, is something that has been around for thousands of years. In fact, the reason some of us have a tough time getting our arms around it, regardless of whether you're raised in a good environment or bad environment, is that we today in America, just in Western culture in general, are very individualistic. But in America, we, we may be the most individualistic people ever. What do you think about that? Just about every culture ever in history has been more community-oriented, more family-oriented, more about shared responsibility and burden than we are today. Today, we are very much, I am my own man. I will make my own decisions. It doesn't have any implication on anybody else. I'm going to do what I want when I want to do it, and I don't care what anyone else says about it. That doesn't sound American. I don't know what does. But you see... There was an idea in the Old Testament, particularly, that um, what I did created a burden and someone had to pay for that burden. And so what, we, what is established in the Old Testament, and I don't know how much you've read this, but I, I want to give you this. What was established in the Old Testament was this idea that God owned your firstborn child. 
And he owned your firstborn child because you owed him a debt because you could not live underneath his law and his rules. And by breaking and living outside his design, you created a debt. And that debt could only be paid by your firstborn. And, and we see this actually established all throughout the Old Testament. If you go to Exodus 13, 16 through 18, you'll see God literally say, your firstborn, all your firstborn livestock, your firstborn children, they're mine. I own them. In Numbers 3.13, he'll say the same thing. Your firstborn is mine. In Numbers 8.17, he'll say, for all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. The idea is that God owns the firstborn of every household because you and I have created a debt by breaking his law and living outside of his design. Now, in the Old Testament, when God set this up, he set up a way where people could redeem, that was the word, they could redeem their firstborn in the form of a sacrifice. So every year, a family, a father, would sacrifice a lamb as a payment for his firstborn because it was God's, but he could redeem it back. And it was God's because of his debt. Now, this is going to sound pretty weird to you and I, because we don't live in that world. And right now, my firstborn is probably shaking in her boots, because I haven't sacrificed any lambs. <laughs> Sorry. But, but this didn't sound odd at all in the Old Testament. I want to show you how normal it was that we kind of pass over it sometimes when we read the Old Testament and don't realize that they understood this so well. And we don't because we, we're outside that culture and it's thousands of years later and we're very individualistic in nature. But if you go all the way back, before Exodus, before this even comes up, before the Passover, God has already established this idea that the firstborn or the first fruits are his. So if you go back right after the Garden of Eden, when you have Cain and Abel, and they, I, I was going to say they get in a fight, but they don't really get in a fight because Cain just kills Abel. Uh, that's not so much a fight. But, but they get in that fight. That, that, that whole story is caused because they're already sacrificing their first fruits. God has already established at the very beginning that the first fruits belong to God because we live outside his design. We create a debt. We're paying that debt by giving him back what is already his. And this will then be written into law in Leviticus through Deuteronomy. You're going to see him write over and over again, establishing the law that the firstborn belongs to him. The firstborn belongs to him. And let me just show you, this shows up probably well before you think it does. In the story of Abraham and Isaac, God has promised Abraham that he's going to, he's going to cover the earth in his offspring, and yet... Abraham doesn't have a son. And he finally gives him a son. His name is Isaac. And then he goes to him and he says, I want you to take your son and I want you to take him up the mountain. I want you to sacrifice him. Now listen to me. You and I hear that and we're like, that's the, that's the strangest thing ever. I've wanted to kill my kid, but not for those reasons. Why, why doesn't he fight that? Why don't you see him like... Where's the pushback? Let me just explain to you that if, if God had told Abraham, uh, hey, tomorrow night go in and kill your wife Sarah, he would have been really perplexed. He would have pushed back. He would have seen a very different reaction for Abraham. The reason you don't see Abraham fight at all when God tells him to do this, he's sad, he's emotional, 
but there's zero pushback as God had already established to Abraham, your firstborn belongs to me. He's mine. God is merely calling in the debt. It's nothing new. When they go up to the hill, I want you to see what Isaac says. This is Genesis 22, one through 14 is where we see this story. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go there and worship and come to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand in his hand, the fire and the knife. They both, and so went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood. What does he say? Where's the lamb? How did Isaac know before we've even established all of these rules in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that there needed to be a lamb. Because God, from the very beginning, established with the very first humans, you, by living outside my design, have created a debt. That debt is paid by your firstborn. He's mine. And the only way you redeem your firstborn is with a lamb. And so a lamb, a lamb shows up very early in our stories, and we continue to see this throughout our story. So we get back to Egypt. I want you to notice a couple things about this story. Number one, the lamb had to be without blemish, had to be perfect. And there's a lot of foreshadowing that we're going to see to Christ, uh, the, the story of Christ here. Secondly, when they uh, cooked this lamb in the Passover, they couldn't break any of the lamb's bones. We'll talk a little bit about that next week and why that was interesting. And the third, the blood of the lamb had to be spread over their doorposts of where they lived in the Passover. So here's the idea of this story is that God tells Moses for this final plague What's going to happen is I'm going to send the destroyer. Now, um, in, in a different portion of Exodus, he actually names the destroyer. And what we come to realize is that this is the angel of death. Now, we don't hear a lot about the angel of death or the destroyer. I know this is very Christmassy. Hang on. Just stay with me, okay? Stay with me. You weren't expecting me to go with angel of death for Christmas. Um, but isn't that the, the Scrooge one, right? Doesn't, yeah, okay. See, we're not too odd. We're too far off. He says, I'm going to send the angel of death. And what, if you really begin to read who the angel of death is and what's happening, who the destroyer is, what you're actually going to see is, what God says is that for one night, I'm actually going to fast forward all the way to judgment day, to the very end, which you're going to see in Revelation. I'm going to take that judgment that is going to be cast at some point on all men and all women and all of the world. And for one night, I'm going to take that judgment and I'm going to have it pass over Egypt. And the judgment that is coming someday is going to come for a, just a glimpse for one night to take back my debt. The destroyer who's coming in the end times is coming to take back 
his debt because he owns the firstborn. Therefore, by killing the firstborn, he is simply reclaiming his debt. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. He doesn't come only to take Egyptian children, does he? He comes to take anyone, Egyptian, Hebrew, Ethiopian, stranger, foreigner, anyone not covered by the blood of the lamb. Anyone. Now, maybe uh, I would submit to you that many, many of us, we're hearing this story, this idea that, that God is reclaiming this debt and this debt is actually a son or a daughter of someone else and that somehow they have to bear the burden of the sin of the father. And we're thinking this doesn't really make Sense. It, doesn't, it doesn't work with our sort of postmodern 2021 view of morality and society and how these things are supposed to work. That, that's not really justice. Well, let, let's, for just a minute, let's set aside a story about ancient world and let's just talk about modern world and, and talk about what justice really is. You see, the problem with living outside God's design is that I could submit to you, even, even without the Bible, even if I took the Bible off the table and we just started to talk about living morally or not living morally that that in every instance in which we begin to live outside God's design at some point the destroyer comes it doesn't matter what it is take work you begin to worship work you begin to 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 view work and and hold on to work and envy work and worship work in a way that is outside God's design and sooner or later what will happen in your life is destruction it's what comes it doesn't matter if you believe the Bible's true or not. That actually has no bearing on whether or not destruction is coming if you begin to live outside God's design when it comes to work. How about relationships? You, you take a spouse, you take a girlfriend, you take a boyfriend, you take a, a fiance, you begin to live outside God's design. You begin to live outside the way God created these relationships to be under the umbrella of his authority and, and his sovereignty and his provision for your life. You begin to worship those things. You begin to, to place too much emphasis on them, too much hope in them. And in time, regardless of how you feel about the Bible or how you feel about God, destruction is coming. Destruction is coming. Intuitively, we know this. We, we understand what it looks like to be a workaholic, particularly good at seeing it in other people, right? Amen. We understand what 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 living outside God's design sexually looks like and what havoc it brings. Some of us know that firsthand. Some of us just anecdotally know that from looking and observationally seeing it in other people. Struggling with, with anger, with your temper, idolizing something and beginning to worship it. It will let you down. And, and, and this idea of justice is that everything has to be set right. That, that, that there's only two ways to pay for an offense. Let's, let's just talk about justice for just a second. There are only two ways to pay when an offense has occurred. If, you, if, if someone has created a great grievance, a great offense against you, there are only two ways to set that right. One of them is for them to pay for what they've done. Amen? The idea of justice, they must pay for it, right? We're a people of justice, amen? They have to pay. Or I have to forgive them. Now, what happens when I forgive them? Well, for, for me to forgive them, I, I have to pay. 
Because in reality, if I were really truly to forgive them, then every time I see them and every time I interact with them, to, to not treat them as if they've offended me, to not treat them the way that I feel about them because of what they've done, I have to pay. But someone has to pay. There's, there's always a payment for debt to set it right. Let me put it this way. Maybe this will make more sense because you're like, I don't know if I really agree with that. Well, here, here you go. Take, the, take someone that has created a great offense, a, a serial rapist and murderer, and they go into court. If the judge were simply to say, sounds like he's sorry, let's let him go. Every one of us, every one of us would go, that's not right. Amen? That's not right. There's no justice in that. Someone has to pay for this. There's a debt and it has to be set right. And if he doesn't pay for what he's done and you let him go, we're paying for what he's done because it devalues the person that he's offended and it devalues the society we're sending him back into, amen? Someone must pay. Even forgiveness is a form of payment. And our sin created a debt. And so when God tells Abraham that, that he's taking his son, he wants him to sacrifice Isaac, he's saying, I'm calling back my debt. And when God comes calling in Egypt, he's calling in a debt. But you notice that these things don't fix the problem because they have to be done every single year. They're really just a way of symbolically kicking the can down the road and buying another year, kicking the can down the road and buying another year, and kicking the can down the road and buying another year, but they're not fixing the problem. Because the problem is you and I. The problem is sin. And so we fast forward to when Jesus comes, and everyone that sees him has, has a similar sort of reaction, right? Everyone that kind of begins to see what Jesus is doing, they begin to say things like, could he be the one? Could he be the, the Christ? Could he be the Messiah? But the interesting thing is that almost everyone that we see interact with Jesus, when they're asking that question, you know what they're asking? Could he be the son of David? Here's what they're really asking. Could he be the king? Could he be the conqueror? Because you know what we want right now? We want justice. Why do we want justice? Because the Romans, they, they have conquered us and they're mistreating us and we're under their subjugation and we want the king to come and we want him to set things right. Could he be the king? You know what they're not asking? Could he be the lamb? And nobody want the lamb, man. Give me the king. I want the guy with the sword and the white horse. I want him lopping off Roman heads everywhere. I want the gladiator. Are you not entertained? That's what I want. I want justice because I feel the brunt of the injustice of the Roman Empire. But nobody wants the lamb and nobody wants the justice on them. Nobody wants the justice of like, oh, well, I'm going to look at you and I'm, and I'm going to ask you if you've lived up to the standard. When the wise men come and ask Herod, they say, now I've... After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In Matthew 12, 22, and this happens over and over again to Jesus, uh, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. And so the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? What do they want? Man, give us the king. Give us the king. 
This was the question continually to Jesus. We want the king, we don't care about the lamb. But don't you hear Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist? When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when John sees him in John 1, 29, he says this. He says, the, day, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew that Jesus was more than a king because he would bring justice, but he would also bring payment because without payment, someone had to bear the cost. And without Jesus bearing the cost, you and I had to bear the cost of our own sin. John knew, John knew. Deep down, even in, in our modern world, uh, where we, we play around with uh, subjective morality and, and excuses, and, and we, we have, this, uh, we have this, this game of comparison that we play all the time, where we look at somebody else and we go, well, they're really bad, and I'm not as bad as them, so clearly I, I'm gonna be okay. Like the cosmic scales are probably gonna tilt back in my favor, because clearly I'm, well, that guy's a lot worse, and I mean, you know, uh, I just have to be better than them. But deep down, you and I, and, and I would submit to you, every person in this world, no matter how religious or a-religious or amoral, whether atheist or agnostic, believer or a believer in some other religion knows this, that when we run out of noise in the still moments where we are forced to consider the real meaning of life, the real what's next, at the very core and essence of you and I, when we run out of things to distract ourselves and have to consistently think through and consider ourselves, our issues, our needs, our failures, that we have moments of real clarity. We know that there is something not only deeply wrong with this world, but deeply wrong with us. That we can't live up to the standard. I'll be really honest. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, is who said this. He said, not only can you, not, you and I not live up to God's standard, he said, if we just put a a little recorder on our shoulder. And over the course of our lives, it only recorded the, the statements we made where we, we expected someone else to behave in a certain way. It only recorded the statements we made when we said, you know, you really shouldn't live that way. Or, you know, you really should learn how to forgive people. Or, you know, this is actually the appropriate way to react to that. Or, you know, it only recorded the times we laid some sort of moral standard on other people. That's all it did. And we played that back at the end of our lives. We would all, every one of us, fall woefully short of our own standards. Forget God's perfect standard. You couldn't live up to your own hypocrisy. Doesn't matter what you believe in. Doesn't matter what moral system you have. Doesn't matter if you have the most subjective moral system around. You can't even live up to your own standard. Something within us is not right. I'm gonna fast forward from the Passover in Egypt where they're gonna they're going to cook this lamb, this, blemish, this lamb without blemish. They're going to take the year-old lamb, an innocent creature. They're going to slay it. They're going to paint its blood over the doorpost. They're going to sit, and they're going to observe a meal that God has prescribed for them to symbolically begin to set the table for what is to come. They're going to drink wine, they're going to eat unleavened bread, they're going to have bitter herbs, we'll talk through those things in a moment, 
and they're going to sit underneath the blood of the lamb as judgment passes over and takes the firstborn of every person not covered by the blood. And we're going to get to Matthew 26, 17 through 29. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? This is now an observance annually for all Israelites. He said, go to the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to me, to that man who by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, rabbi? And he said, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. The Passover has, uh, the observance of the Passover has changed over the course of the last few thousand years. It's still observed today by Jews. Uh, but at the time, what they would have had is uh, they had four cups of wine. And each of the cups of wine symbolized different aspects of being freed from exile, uh, being freed from the slavery of the Egyptians. And so they would have, uh, at this table, they would have set out and prepared these, these four cups of wine. And then they had unleavened bread. And so they would, they would bake a bread without leaven, without yeast. And they did so for a couple reasons. One was symbolically to show uh, the haste in which they were going to leave Egypt. Egypt that next day, that they were going to run out of Egypt basically to their freedom. And, and it would also symbolize later the, the absence of sin, that a little, a little yeast or a little leaven goes a long way to ruin things. And so they would have this unleavened bread, this flat bread, and then they had bitter herbs, right? And so they had these bitter herbs, and it was there to, to remind them of how bitter it was to be enslaved under the burden of the Egyptian taskmasters. And then they had the centerpiece of the Passover, which was the lamb, now we read communion, we read the Lord's Supper, and here they are observing this long tradition in Jewish history. And laid out before them, they have the wine, and they have the unleavened bread, and they have the bitter herbs, and they have the, the reverence as they remember this. You know what they don't have? They're not eating lamb. So the lamb is serving the meal. That's why when we partake in communion in the Lord's Supper. We don't eat lamb because the lamb came already for you and I. The lamb was at the table, but he wasn't on the plate. The lamb would go to the cross. The long anticipation where for over a thousand years the Israelites had had prophecy and foretelling and foreshadowing of a coming lamb to take away the sins of the world had come to take away the sins. And, and most had missed it. 
They wanted a king. They weren't looking for a lamb, and yet the king is the lamb. He's the lamb. And never again would you and I need to sacrifice a lamb in order to deal with our sin. Never again would we need to deal with the debt of our sin once we've been covered by the blood of the lamb. God would deal with it once and for all at that point. Never again would you and I stare into our own souls and wonder if it would ever be made right, if there was ever anything that could fix what has gone wrong deep down inside of us. I've simply recovered by the blood of the lamb. The entire story arc of the Bible from the beginning to the end is crafted this way. Each of these stories has has been put together like a puzzle so that you and I would have the benefit of looking at not only God's history of how he has been faithful to his people, but how he architected a story, knowing that you and I would fail and create a debt that we couldn't pay, and yet he would take his firstborn, his lamb, without blemish, And he would offer him up as a sacrifice so that his blood could do what a a simple lamb's blood could never do, to take away our sin. So you and I could see the need for Jesus, the work of Jesus in, in coming, not simply to bring us justice, which he will do, but to bring us mercy in the form of payment. What does this mean for you and I today as we as we look forward to Christmas and and the coming king. Number one, it means this. No one, no one, not Egyptian, not Hebrew, not American, not man, woman, different ethnicity, different socioeconomic demographic, no one can escape the judgment of God. And likewise, There is no variation or designation that is excluded from the saving grace because of the blood of the lamb. All are welcome. Jesus died for all, for you and for me. Mercy and salvation, they are God's free gift that we treasure at Christmas season because they are for all men. In Matthew 1, 21, the Bible says she gave birth to a son and you are to give him the na- she will give birth to the son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This was the design from the very beginning. And if you don't know today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, your king and your lamb, you can do that today. You can put your trust in him. And instead of taking uh, blood and putting it on the doorpost, the Bible would say that you simply need to declare your faith by declaring it with your words and believing it in your heart. And we're going to be up here for you to do that today. What is our takeaway from this? If you already know Jesus is your personal savior, that for us, this Christmas season is about anticipating another return. The lamb has come, but when he returns, he will come as a king. He won't be riding a donkey this time. It'll be a white horse. And he will wipe away every tear, and he will right every wrong, and he will mend every wound. Have hope, Christian. He is a good, good father, and Jesus is a good, 
good savior, one that we don't deserve and yet we get to partake in anyways. And that's worthy of celebration. And that's worthy of anticipation. And that's something to be excited about. A lamb and a king, and yet they're one and the same. The hope of every believer in this and every Christmas season is we have the lamb and we're looking forward to the king. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the Christmas season to remember whom you've sent us and who you will send us again. God, for those that hurt, for those that grieve, for those that mourn, for those that struggle, God, encourage us. Let us behold the lamb, God, not merely recognize the lamb, not merely know intellectually there's a lamb. Let us behold your son, the lamb of God that takes away our sins. God, let us cling to the hope that is Christ. For those struggling, God, remind us that there is hope in your grace and mercy. Help us to encourage one another, God. Help us to lift each other up in this Christmas season. God, for those that are far from you, that don't know you, God, draw them to you. Woo them, God. Stir up their affection. Bring men to you, God. We love you and we thank you. Excited to see what you do, God, as we watch you continue to do kingdom work in our midst. Help us to behold the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.